Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top news of the day. The first news is, well, a glimmer of hope concerning the COVID-19 pandemic. Are we beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel? Now, mark my words, there have been a number of false alarms. Many times people thought that we saw the light at the end of the tunnel, only to have our hopes dashed. But this time, this time the statistics seem to indicate that the virus is beginning to taper off which gives us some hope that maybe, just maybe, we are nearing herd immunity. Well, we'll talk about the pros and cons of that in exploration. And also, William Shatner, the star of Star Trek as Captain Kirk. Well, he's making headlines being the oldest person to fly into outer space at the age of 90. But he's also making headlines by being, in some sense, a guinea pig to see whether or not we can attain digital immortality. Is it possible that one day a digital copy of ourselves will become immortal? That our great-great-great-great-great-grandkids may have a conversation with their illustrious great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather and in some sense we will attain digital immortality. So we'll talk about that on exploration. And we know from the movies that an asteroid with our name on it could wipe out all life on Earth. After all, the dinosaurs, the dinosaurs did not have a space program. And that's why there are no dinosaurs with us today to talk about it. Well, we do. But we had to test the system. Well, it turns out that NASA wants to do exactly that. On November 23, next month, NASA wants to send a rocket into outer space to impact on an asteroid to see whether or not we can deflect a killer asteroid headed our way. So there's a lot writing on it, but for the first time, NASA is now taking seriously the threat of a killer asteroid that one day may catch us totally off guard and make us go the way of the dinosaurs. Also, some people have said that one day robots could become dangerous. Maybe one day the robots will take over. But one danger that's imminent and is happening now, not a hundred years in the future, it turns out that killer robots apparently have a license to kill without human intervention. This is being watched very carefully now in Syria, where there seems to be a drone attack where killer robots are allowed to kill without human supervision. Well, let's just jump right into some of the big stories of the hour. People who've looked at the numbers are beginning to get a little bit cautious, maybe a little bit cocky, by saying maybe, just maybe we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel after a number of false starts. The light at the end of the tunnel. Well, that's called herd immunity, when, hypothetically, you reach maybe 70% of the population being infected. That's what happened to the famous 1918 Spanish flu virus. 
that killed more people than World War I. It suddenly disappeared. Well, where did it go? It actually didn't go anywhere. There's one theory which says that the descendants of the famous 1918 Spanish flu virus are with us today. But it killed so many people, there were no more fresh bodies to kill. Herd immunity was attained, and therefore in its own self-interest, the virus had to mutate to become a milder form, or it would literally kill itself out of extinction. So in other words, in order to preserve its own existence, and because of the fact that it was so effective that it was wiping out millions of individuals, the virus had to mutate to become milder. Well, that's what we hope will happen with this virus. Already in some countries, people are approaching 70% immunization due to the vaccine. And so there's hope. There's hope that maybe we'll be able to see a glimmer of herd immunity. Now, let's be fair about this. There are holdouts. People, for whatever reason, do not want to become vaccinated. And they form a reservoir, a reservoir where the virus can still mutate and expand. So we're not out of the woods yet. However, the Pfizer vaccine is now undergoing its booster phase. And so already we begin to see the fact that vaccines wear down with time. Same thing with the ordinary seasonal flu. You have to get a booster shot every year because it mutates. The same thing here. In a worst-case scenario, the Delta virus could mutate, giving a more lethal and more dangerous variety. Let's keep our fingers crossed and hope that we don't have yet another killer mutation that's more infectious and more dangerous than the previous version. But like I said, right now, statisticians, epidemiologists are holding their breath, hoping that maybe we're seeing the glimmer of herd immunity seeing perhaps the light flicker at the end of the tunnel. Well, also, William Shatner of Star Trek, who plays Captain Kirk, of course, is making headlines again, not just because at age 90 he's the oldest man to go into outer space, but he's also a person who's in some sense is attaining a form of digital immortality. Now, let me explain. Let's say that you compile all your credit card transactions, your Instagram photographs, all your emails, your digital fingerprint, compile all of it. And of course, include your diary, include interviews, everything known about you. One day, artificial intelligence will be able to analyze that, sort it out, and create a reasonable copy of who you are what kinds of shopping you like, what kinds of wines do you like, what countries you like to vacation at. It's not going to be perfect, but over the years, over the decades, it's going to get closer and closer to the real you. That, in turn, can be analyzed by artificial intelligence and your voice. Your voice can also be recorded, and then the computer can manipulate that so you can then speak as if you were part of the computer program. Well, William Shatner is part of this experiment. He, for four days, sat down and answered 600 questions. 600 questions about his life, his work on Star Trek, his work on television, 
600 questions, and then a software program ran through it all to make sense of it, to categorize it. Which questions dealt with certain episodes of Star Trek? Which questions dealt with his early life? And it was all assembled so that you can ask a question. So the company that's sponsoring this is called Storyfile, and it uses a software program called Conversa. Conversa is skilled at taking sentences of, let's say, your life conversation and categorizing it, breaking down which questions deal with your early life, which questions deal with the kinds of foods you like, things like that. And then if you're asked 600 questions over four days, you get a reasonable approximation of who you are. In the future, this is going to become even more accurate as artificial intelligence systems will be able to go through all that's known about you digitally. For example, when you go to the library, instead of taking out a book about Winston Churchill, in the future you'll talk to Winston Churchill. All his speeches, all his notes, everything in his own voice can be homogenized using artificial intelligence. So you simply ask a question and the computer finds the correct answer and spits out the answer in his voice. And it's a holographic image, a holographic image of Winston Churchill so you can actually sit down and talk to the guy. I would love to talk to Einstein. I know that one day everything about him will be digitized. His thoughts, his speeches, his writings, his theories, his equations. One day all of that will be digitized and a computer program like Conversa will break it down so that you can talk to it and it will talk back in his voice. And one day this perhaps could be our history. In other words, you'll be able to be digitized so that you can talk to your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren and your great-great-great-great-grandchildren can talk back to you. Now, of course, then the question arises, is that really you in the computer program? The holographic image looks like you. It talks like you. It answers all your deep questions as if it were you, but is it really you? Well, to paraphrase former President Bill Clinton, it all depends on how you define you. Unfortunately, there's only one word that says you. We don't differentiate between you and the digital you. That's not part of the English language. So in other words, the digital you at some point in the future will gradually become indistinguishable from the real you. Is it going to be you? Well, who knows? And then, of course, one day we'll create an avatar. That is a robot. A robot that looks just like you, walks and talks like you. And, of course, it accesses this software program so that it can has access to all your memories, all your financial transactions, everything known about you can be put into the memory of this avatar. Once you are in an avatar, then we can send you into outer space. We can put that digitized information on a laser beam, and that information can be shot to the moon. In one second, you are on the moon. In just 10 minutes, you could be on Mars, 
traveling at the speed of light. All the digitized information that makes your soul can be shot into outer space at the speed of light so that you can begin to explore the galaxy. Now, of course, when you land on the moon, you're a light beam, it'll have to be downloaded. Downloaded into a mainframe on the moon and then put into an avatar on the moon that looks just like you, except it has superhuman powers. It can fly. It's invulnerable. It's physically perfect, handsome, pretty, whatever you want. And so in this way, you can explore the universe at the speed of light. Now, believe it or not, Everything I just talked about is well within the laws of physics. There's nothing in the laws of physics that prevent the digitization of a copy of you and shooting it out into outer space where you're downloaded into an avatar so that you can survive on Mars and Jupiter and Saturn and the moons and wherever you are traveling at the speed of light. Now, however, I'll stick my neck out. I think this already exists. You see, if there are alien civilizations out there, they're probably so advanced, they've already done this. For them, they don't use booster rockets. They don't use old-fashioned weightlessness and propulsion systems that we use today. Too dangerous, too slow, too clumsy. Why not explore the universe at the speed of light? In fact, there could be a highway, a laser highway, maybe close to the Earth, containing the digitized souls of billions of aliens that are rocketing from one planet to the next. In other words, laser porting themselves across the universe. Now that, of course, is science fiction. But the fact that we will one day digitize ourselves, I think, is a foregone conclusion. For example, think of your ancestors. How do you know what your ancestors did? 23andMe, of course, has reinvigorated interest in working out our family tree. But put it this way. When you go far enough, you eventually hit a church. In that church, there's a book. One line of the book tells you where your, your relatives were born, the date they were born. Another line tells you the date that they died. And that's it. An entire life capsulated in two lines in a book. When you were born, and when you die, there's no record of your ancestors at all, except for these two lines. Wouldn't it be great to be able to talk to your ancestors, to be able to share in the struggles and hopes and dreams that they have? Well, that's a real possibility once we have digital immortality. That is, already our digital fingerprint is immortal, but what happens when an artificial intelligence system brings it to life so that it talks to you, answers questions, reveals your inner thoughts? Then you become digitally immortal. And now let's say something about outer space and asteroids. We've all seen the movies like Armageddon and Deep Impact. There's a monster rock out there with our name on it. It's barreling close to the Earth, and we're practically helpless to prevent it. Will we go the way of the dinosaurs? The dinosaurs didn't have a space program. They were clueless. They didn't have a chance. But we have Bruce Willis, right? We're going to send our shuttlecraft and intercept that 
asteroid and blow it up, right? Wrong. Believe it or not, well, first of all, the space shuttle was canceled by former President Barack Obama. Under the new president, we have a revitalized shuttle program, but even that shuttle cannot go into deep space. That's right. We don't have rockets that can go into deep space to blow up a killer asteroids. Our rockets simply go around the planet Earth. The Saturn rocket was an exception, but for the most part, we simply spin around the, the Earth, going essentially nowhere. So one day, if there's a killer asteroid headed in our direction, what do we do? Nothing. There's really not much we can do. So that's why NASA, next month, is going to send the first rocket to deflect an asteroid. This is going to make history. It'll be launched on November 23rd, next month, is called the Double Asteroid Redirect Test, or DART for short. And it's going to impact, impact at 15,000 miles per hour, and hit a rock, a rock that's about 400 feet across, and defect, deflect it ever so slightly. Now, we're talk, not talking about a major redirection of the asteroid, no. It's going to basically deflect it a little bit. And we want to calculate by how much that asteroid was deflected. Now, it turns out that we don't even know if asteroids are solid. Maybe asteroids consist of a bunch of loose rock, loosely held together by gravity. Or maybe it's solid. We don't know. So, when the impact takes place, when uh, the rocket hits this asteroid at 15,000 miles per hour, it could deflect it. That's all we want to know. Can you deflect an asteroid so that it misses the Earth? If it's far enough away, it could miss the Earth by quite a bit. That's the hope. Or is it a bunch of loose rock? In which case, this test will be useless because it'll simply deflect a few particles of the asteroid, but the bulk of the asteroid is still pretty much headed in the previous trajectory. These are all the unknowns. We're dealing with uncharted territory now as we decide what to do with a killer asteroid with our name on it. Now, the worst thing you may want to do is put an atomic bomb or hydrogen bomb on that asteroid. If you blow it up, you have not just one asteroid, you have dozens of small killer asteroids headed your way, which can do much more damage than one big asteroid. So maybe you don't want to blow it up with a hydrogen bomb. Maybe you want to deflect it. Then the question is, how often do these things come and how dangerous really are they? First of all, we have something called city busters. City busters are objects maybe uh, the size of an apartment building, and they hit the Earth maybe once every 100 years. In fact, two, not one, but two of these city busters have hit the Earth within the last century or so. Both of them hit Russia, one in Tunguska and the other one in Chelyabinsk. Two of these asteroids hitting Russia. So these objects can wipe out London, wipe out Washington, D.C., if it were to score a direct hit, an object roughly the size of an apartment building hitting a major city. The frequency of these things, roughly once every 100 years or once every 200 years. Then we have the Nation Buster. An object, perhaps up to a mile across, 
And if it were to hit the earth, it would take out Germany. It would take out England, for example. These objects are much rarer, perhaps once in a thousand years, but they could do considerable damage by wiping out an entire nation on the planet Earth. And then we have the planet busters. Objects that are up to um, five miles, maybe um, uh, six miles, we think that was the size of the object that plowed into Mexico in the Yucatan 66 million years ago, wiping out the dinosaurs. Now, do we track all these things? Mainly, we track objects larger than a football field. If an object is much smaller than a football field, it could cause a lot of damage, of course, but we don't track them. They're too small. So what do we track? We track roughly 8,000. 8,000 of these objects which go across the orbit of the Earth that are larger than a football field. They pose a direct danger to Earth because they cross the Earth's orbit. But they are bigger than a football field. Objects smaller than a football field can also cause tremendous damage, but we don't monitor them. In other words, we could be caught totally by surprise. The conclusion is, sad to say, we are a sitting duck. If we were to find evidence of a killer asteroid right now, we would be powerless. Absolutely powerless. It takes years, years to get a rocket ready to make an intercept. And that's why this NASA probe, scheduled for launch November 23, will make history. And then here's another story, a mystery. It turns out that some people fear robots, not because they're going to become uh, like Arnold Schwarzenegger 100 years from now, but today, the danger is automatic killing machines. You know, we have drones, drones on the battlefield, but there's always somebody looking through that telescope, and it has, they have veto power. They can say no to the probe, no, you can't strike that target as one of our friendly forces. That's the way it is now. But what happens if we have automatic killing machines? Killing machines that are simply authorized to kill anything with a human silhouette. That's dangerous. And that's why some people, some scientists in fact, friends of mine, have signed a petition against automatic killing machines. Now I think we have to differentiate here. We're not talking about Terminator-type machines that could create the extinction of the human race. No. We're talking about automatic killing machines that have the authority to shoot on sight without human intervention. That's the danger. And that's an immediate danger. And in Syria, there was evidence that perhaps there was, in fact, a drone that was given license to kill. This is still being investigated. There were rumors that it was from Turkey. However, who knows for sure, we still have to investigate this. But this is a rather serious turn of events because we're not talking about the future when we have potentially killing machines that are real danger like Arnold Schwarzenegger or the Terminator series, but killing machines on the battlefield with the authority to take human life without any human intervention whatsoever. And now let me say a few things about maybe a hundred years from now. Our most advanced robots do not have the intelligence 
of an Arnold Schwarzenegger in the Terminator movies. Our most advanced robots have the intelligence of a cockroach, a bug. Even a bug can do reconnaissance, hunt for food, find mates, hide in the forest, scurry around. No, our robots can barely walk across the room. You're not talking about a robotic soldier. You're talking about an insect. However, as the decades go by, one day they'll be as smart as a mouse, then as smart as a rat, then as smart as a rabbit, then as smart as a dog or a cat, and then perhaps as smart as a monkey. At that point, then they are potentially dangerous because monkeys are self-aware. They create their own agenda. They know they're not human. They know they're not one of us. Now, dogs. Dogs are confused. You see, dogs think that we are the top dog. We are the alpha male. We're the leader of the pack. That's why they obey us, because they get confused and they think that we are a dog. Well, monkeys, on the other hand, have what is called self-awareness. They know that monkeyness is different from humanness, and they set their own agenda. No one has to tell them or give them orders. There's no alpha male in a pack that says, you do this, you do this. No. In Among monkeys, they pretty much wander by themselves, take care of things by themselves. That is potentially dangerous. It's not going to happen soon, but I say maybe in 100 years. I'll take a guess. Maybe in 100 years' time, we will have robots that are self-aware, that understand that they are machines. They understand that they can set their own agenda and create their own goals independent of the goals of humanity. What do we do? I think we should put a chip in their brain to shut them off if they have murderous thoughts. We need a fail-safe system. A fail-safe system in order to prevent them from going berserk and killing their masters. So we want to make sure that robots, before they reach self-awareness, they have a fail-safe system that shuts them off. Now, you may ask yourself another question. Let's say it's now 200 years in the future. Robots aren't stupid. They'll get smarter and smarter. Sooner or later, won't they be able to remove that chip, remove that fail-safe system so that they can have independence and determine their own fate independent of humans? Well, the answer is potentially yes. So what do we do at that point? Well, I don't know. But one thing we could do is contemplate merging with them. Instead of fighting them, maybe we become them. Why not become superhuman? Why not become super handsome, super pretty? Why not become the people that we once admired when we were young, but they were so distant, we thought we would never become them? Why not become superhuman? Now, this, of course, is science fiction. I think people will democratically decide for themselves what they want to do. Who are we, their ancestors, to decide what our progeny many, many generations from now will want? Who knows what they'll want? All I'm saying is, necessarily, there's not, not necessarily going to be doomsday once robots get more intelligent. 
Some people say that it's extinction for the human race. Well, I don't know about that. You see, because humans create the robots. The robots do pretty much what we tell them to do because they have no self-awareness. But one day, when they do have self-awareness, perhaps we should consider the science fiction possibility of merging with them. Well, I'm afraid that concludes the first part of exploration. Well, we talked about immortality, but what does religion say about immortality? Because immortality is at the foundation of many religions. So we're going to bring on a philosopher who will talk about religion and philosophy and immortality. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. Stay tuned for the second half of exploration when we talk about digital immortality. Stay tuned. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the first half of Exploration, we talked about, well, immortality, digital immortality. Is it possible that one time in the future we will digitize our soul, our being, our memories, everything known about us digitized? which will then live forever on the internet. But of course, immortality, the search for immortality, is as old as the Bible. In fact, the tales of Gilgamesh even predate some of the Bible. And Gilgamesh was a warrior who traveled around the world looking for something. And what was he looking for? This is one of the oldest quests in the written language. He was looking for the secret of immortality. And Emperor Qin, the great emperor that unified China in about 200 BC, no matter how powerful he was, every time he looked in the mirror, he could see that he was getting old. So he gathered all his princes one day, and he ordered them to go out and find the fountain of youth. And if you don't find the fountain of youth, he said, don't come back. Well, apparently they never found the fountain of youth. They never came back. But apparently that's why Korea and that's why Japan was colonized, because they were outcasts from imperial China. Well, that of course is a search for immortality, but now science gives us the possibility of digital immortality. But will that satisfy the need? Philosophers have asked that question. All religions talk about some kind of origin myth, some kind of higher being that gives us meaning of some sort. And the question is, why? In fact, Daniel Dennett, a philosopher at Tufts University, even believed that it's 
part of our evolutionary heritage. And so, in this part of exploration, we're going to talk about the origin of religion. Is there a material basis to explain why all societies have some sort of religion? If you were a Martian, coming down from Mars, analyzing humanity for the first time, you would interview billions of people, and you would come to the conclusion that there must be a God gene. There must be a gene there because everywhere you look, there seems to be a God of some sort. Maybe it's genetic. Well, we'll ask all these questions to Professor Daniel Dennett about the origin of religion. Now I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. We're very delighted to have with us Dr. Daniel Dennett, Director of the Center for Cognitive Studies at Tufts University. And he's the author of a very controversial book that people are talking about called Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon. In other words, can science tease apart the origin of religion? Is religion itself a byproduct of Darwin's theory of evolution? Well, these are some of the questions we're going to ask Dr. Dennett as we talk about whether or not science can explain religion. In other words, can we break the spell? Religion as a natural phenomenon. As a youth now, can you tell me how you first got interested in science? Well, I got some books that had a wonderful for children, well, not for children, for young adults, the account of, of Einstein's theory of relativity, and I read that through and got fascinated with it. But actually, I, I didn't study science very, very much in school. I was a, I, in college, I was a philosophy major. I didn't really get into science until I was in graduate school when I decided I really wanted to understand how the human mind worked. And to do that, you had to know psychology, you had to know neuroscience, you had to know artificial intelligence. So I began to educate myself in those fields. Well, then, what was, it, what, was, what was it about philosophy as a youth that got you interested? Well, I think a lot of kids ask philosophical questions without thinking of it as philosophy. Just, why are we here? What's the nature of truth? What's the nature of reality? Uh, what's time? What's space? What's the cause? Uh, and I found myself um, asking those questions, and I think it was when I was a Oh, about 11 or 12 or 10, maybe, uh, off at summer camp, and a few of the counselors there suggested to me, oh, what you are is a philosopher, Dan. And I didn't even know what a philosopher was, but I thought, oh, okay, cool. You mean you can, you can actually do this for a living? Wouldn't that be great? Okay, and then what got you interested in cognitive science? Um, well, cognitive science is uh, didn't even exist when I first got interested in it as a term. It's just the various sciences, the interdisciplinary field of the mind. And uh, uh, as I said, I was interested in what dreams were and optical illusions and visual illusions and hallucinations and uh, memory. And I thought about it just on my own as best I could, and I began to hunt around for uh, uh, books and experiments. And uh, 
but most of my serious work in cognitive science didn't start till I was in graduate school. Okay, now let's talk about religion and the substance of your book. Uh, first of all, anyone picking up a copy of your book might think to themselves, uh-oh, here's another liberal diatribe by an atheist denouncing religion and saying God does not exist. However, I guess that would be an unfair criticism of that, right? Well, that would be an unfair criticism, uh, not because I'm not a liberal and an atheist. I am both a liberal and an atheist. But that's not the point of my book. My point of the book is to say, look, I don't know whether religion is a good thing or not. It may be, but it's a thing. It's a phenomenon. It's a fantastic set of phenomena. They're beautifully designed to do what they do. Let's study them scientifically. We really need to because our understanding of these phenomena is going to be very crucial in the coming century as we deal with the world's problems. Let's look under the hood and see what makes them tick. Okay, now if you were a Martian coming down to analyze Homo sapiens and you realize that, well, gee, all Homo sapien tribes have a religion, there seems to be a deity or some kind of mystical uh, trappings to each of these philosophies, wouldn't you say, therefore, that, well, gee, maybe there's something genetic about all this? Well, uh, something has to explain it. You're absolutely right. Um, uh, Martian biologists would say... uh, no, no, no such expenditure of energy and time and, and wealth uh, could possibly uh, persist if it wasn't if it wasn't paid for by by differential reproduction of one sort or another. So there's probably a genetic base, but of course it could also be that the that the practices themselves uh, reproduce uh, and jump from host to host, from person to person, and the 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 survival benefit is to them, not to, the, not to their host. Okay, now let's talk about that specifically. Uh, the essence of evolution is that when different species acquire certain characteristics by mutations or what have you, uh, it helps their survivability. That's they right. then pass these characteristics on to their progeny. There's an advantage. Now here's the key question, therefore. If societies do spontaneously uh, uh, adopt religions, then if there is an evolutionary basis to this, as you claim, there is an advantage. There has to be some kind of selective advantage that religion gives them. What is that advantage? Well, there has to be a selective advantage that is given to something, not necessarily to them. You're right. Every, every human culture that's been studied, from small tribes to great nations, has, has religion. Every human culture already ever studied also has the common cold. Now, if we say, well, gee, I wonder what advantage the common cold provides to, uh, to people, the answer is it doesn't provide any. It survives because it can survive. The advantage is to it, to the, to the viruses and other pathogens that reproduce. And what we have to take seriously is the idea that religions survive because they can. Now, maybe they're really good for us. After all, in our bodies, in each of our bodies, there are not just thousands, not millions, not billions, but trillions of tiny organisms without which we could not live. They are essential to us. But it's their survival that that's how they evolve. They evolve, uh, uh, they have their own genetic fitness. And we have to look at the fitness of religious ideas on their own. Okay, now in your book, you take us back 
thousands and thousands of years when humanity existed in small tribes, almost like in wolf packs, and you then trace how religion could emerge from these very primitive societies because it performed some kind of service. So take us back now to the early days and trace the origin of religion. Okay, first of all, I want to remind you of, of, uh, of a feature that we share with, with most animals. Uh, um, you may have seen your dog suddenly jump up when, and growl when uh, some, some snow slid off the roof uh, and landed with a noisy thud outside the window, or some, start, some noise suddenly makes your dog jump up and growl. What's that dog doing? He's looking around to see, who's that? Who's that? Who's there? Who made that noise? He's jumping to the conclusion that there's an agent, a being that has beliefs and desires and intentions that maybe is out to get him. Now, that's a hair-trigger response, the, the agent's detector or the agency detector, and it's, a, it's something that we have when we hear rustling in the bushes, we are uh, immediately alerted to this. Whenever anything novel and complicated and mysterious happens, one of our first thoughts, if not our very first thought, is, who's there? Who's doing that? Why? And this, has, this obviously has a survival advantage. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a great way of staying alive if you've got a sort of predator detector. Of course, it may be a mate or it may be a rival. Uh, you want to find out. You want to orient to that thing and find out. So that's something that we share with animals. So what I suppose is that just as, as your dog might jump up, whenever puzzling things happened among our hominid ancestors, they were, they were saying, who's that, to themselves. But then their imaginations, because they had language, I'm supposing at this time, this were taking us back way into prehistory, but when language had been born, these ancestors of ours said, gosh, what was that? Did that tree talk? I think that tree talked. Oh, my God, a talking tree. Of course, they didn't say, oh, my God. They said, oh, my, a talking tree. And they did this all the time, maybe hundreds of times a day. They'd do the little startle. And most of these were sort of silly ideas, and they didn't catch on. But a few of them, were sort of more memorable, sort of unforgettable, and they would stick in people's heads, and they would think about them, and maybe they'd compare notes and say, hey, do you know about that talking tree? Oh, no, really, a talking tree? Who knows what the ideas were? But they re replicated in the minds of the people, and they began to have a common stock of unforgettable ideas of agents. These were not real agents. These were figments of their imagination. But we've just explained how that could get started. Now we've got competition in the brains of those ancestors. There's limited space. There's competition for rehearsal space in those minds. And some of them, the most unforgettable, the most vivid, the most, the most gratifying to think about, those are the ones that are going to stick around. So now we've got gods and demons and goblins uh, in, in great abundance as we see in the worlds of folk religions today. And then gradually these get refined, and I could tell a very long story, but I tell it in the book, but I'll just shorten it down now and say a few of these ideas were particularly valuable or apparently valuable. For instance, one of the most uncomfortable feelings anybody can have is the sense of indecision. What do I do now? What should I do now? And sometimes we flip a coin or sometimes we consult tea leaves, or sometimes we ask a friend, and sometimes we're just stumped. 
Well, the idea of asking one of these gods, what should I do? And then waiting until some kind of signal is given back could have been a great way to just get us off the dime and get us to do something. And sometimes when indecision is itself the enemy, when mainly what we have to do is figure out what to do and then all agree to do it together, having a God that can tell you what to do, even if the God is just complete chance, at least you're going to do something, you're all going to do the same thing. Now, animals, apparently, are not aware of their mortality. Humans, of course, can be obsessed by their mortality, and some people think that perhaps religion got started when we began to contemplate an afterlife. But what are your thoughts? Well, I think there's a lot to that. Um, uh, a, a corpse is something which is fearful and something that we find uh, repugnant and and we want to get away from it at the same time if it's the body of a loved one we want to approach it we don't want to go away so we have a tremendous conflict when when somebody we love somebody particularly in our family dies this creates turmoil for for good biological reasons and that somehow that turmoil has to be negotiated something has to be done so this is a very powerful force to to drive the creation of ritual as a, as a way of getting over this turmoil and responding to it. And part of what we have to deal with there is the habits of mind that we've formed. For years, we've been thinking, well, I wonder what she thinks about this, and would she like this or would she like that? Or does she know such and such? Oh, I hope she doesn't know that I just did that, and so forth and so on. We're always imagining, thinking about, wondering about what our loved ones are thinking about, wanting, intending, doing. When somebody dies, that doesn't stop. We can't turn that habit off. Those, those habits of mind continue and fill our heads with the ghost of the person who just died. That's a sort of persistence of a habit of thought which quite naturally turns into the conviction that, well, they're not really dead. They're still here. You can't see them anymore, but they're still here. They're with us. And we can still ask them, what should we do now? So it's not surprising that in, in just about every case that's been studied, the ancestors of the religion are ancestors. There's ancestor worship. Uh, it is no accident that God is called Father, or occasionally Mother, in just about every religion. Now, back in those days, people didn't live very long. Uh, today, of course, we can plan our retirement in Florida, but back then they didn't live long enough to die of heart disease and cancer and old age. Uh, the life expectancy was on the order of perhaps maybe 20 years, say some demographers. So death was constantly around them, including their own mortality. So you think that gave an impetus to to, for people to believe in religion, realizing that they could live forever, even though there's death all around them? Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's uh, a, a plausible factor. I think we, can, we could take that one and many others and put them all together uh, and then start sorting them out and seeing which ones, which ones are really important and why, and then we can start to dream up psychological research, for instance, that could test some of those hypotheses. It seems, for instance, to be uh, particularly important that 
I mean, there's a tradition that God is omniscient, but it turns out that what people really behave as if they believe is that God is omniscient about things that matter morally or that matter strategically. Uh, it's not so much that, that, that um, um, God knows um, how many grains of sand are on the beach, but God knows if you do something wrong, or God knows uh, if you tell a lie, uh, or, or uh, where, the, where the, the stolen items uh, are. Uh, we, can, we can devise subtle experiments that can test out people's uh, really involuntary reactions to scenarios of this sort and see that uh, uh, a lot of the lore of religion that is officially written in the, in the text is not actually officially followed. Now, then the key question is, what advantage does this confer onto a tribe? Let's say you have two tribes, one tribe that ignores religion totally, yep. and one tribe that gets into all this mysticism, reincarnation, God worship, pantheism, what have you. Uh, why does the second tribe survive or have a better survival um, probability than the first tribe, which says, bah, humbug, there are no demons, there are no ghosts, there is no afterlife? Well, um, maybe it doesn't. That's, that's just one of the evolutionary possibilities. It may be that the, that the uh, ideas of the, of, the, of the religious ideas, they survive just fine, but they don't do the tribe any good. That's always a possibility. Uh, it's probably more likely that the tribe that does have the uh, uh, religious ideas, the beliefs in the supernatural, is... Uh, given a greater sense of cohesiveness, uh, they're a bit more forthright, they are, are more confident in battle, uh, and there's a lot of warfare going on uh, between these tribes. Uh, they're more ruthless and more confident in battle, and that may be uh, the key to why, why it helps them. Uh, whether it's still a good uh, adaptation uh, for, for human groups is, is an open question. Uh, our sweet tooth, after all, is, is, is more of a problem than a benefit today, but it was, certainly a, it was certainly a good adaptation for us to have back in those days. Now, we also had uh, Dean Hamer, uh, Hammer from the National Institutes of Health on our radio waves. He talked about a God gene, uh, the fact that perhaps there is a gene in our genome that actually uh, uh, selects out those people who believe in God. And there is something called epileptic lesions, uh, that is, uh, lesions to the brain that can actually be induced by a blow to the brain, in which people see gods, demons, uh, and witches everywhere, that everything is caused by gods. If it rains, well, there was a rain god that did it. They, became, they become super-duper religious if they have epileptic lesions. Some people think may, maybe Joan of Arc uh, had epileptic lesions. But, well, what are your thoughts about something as... Uh, um, something as nitty-gritty as a god gene. Well, I think that's putting it in a, in a sort of overly vivid and, and, and crude way. Of course, sometimes you have to get an idea out there in sort of cartoon form first and then look at the details. I think it's possible. First of all, of course, no matter what you think about, there's something in your brain that's lighting up uh, uh, just in order to make it possible to think about that. So the fact that there would be parts of your brain lighting up when you're thinking about God or when, you, when you're having a religious experience is, is, should not be a surprise to anybody on any account. The question is, why would there be 
if there is, uh, a specific uh, gene for making it more likely for people to have uh, religious experiences. And um, Hamer doesn't have much to say about this in his book, but I think uh, others have put forward some interesting research that could shed light on this. Um, uh, uh, McLennan, the, the uh, anthropologist, has pointed out that everywhere uh, in folk religions you have shamanic healing, you have witch doctors, you have shamans who go through elaborate ceremonies, and then often they have uh, involving hallucinogens and, and drugs, local potions made of, of, of materials found in the area. And some of this really works. Uh, it works for some things. Uh, shamanic healing is, is not just hocus-pocus. And in particular, uh, it works for conditions where a placebo effect can be induced. Uh, and so the suggestion is that what shamanic healers were very good at finding, devising, were techniques which they passed on to their, to their successors for inducing a sort of hypnotic analgesia, a sort of hypnosis, which had a placebo effect, which helped relieve the pain of childbirth, for instance, and could cure uh, some ills. Now, if that's true, then the fact that some people are more or less immune to hypnosis, they just aren't hypnotizable, other people are very hypnotizable. Now, if there's a genetic difference between those people, and there may well be, and that may be what Dean Hamer has, has discovered, then, of course, having the gene for susceptibility to hypnosis would be, in effect, having health insurance. <laughs> uh, back in those days, there were no doctors, there were no hospitals. If you needed relief, your only hope was the shaman. And if you had a genetic difference from your neighbor, which meant that shamans were more effective with you, than they were with your neighbor, this could be a tremendous fitness boost for you. Okay, I picked up a copy of Time Magazine a few years ago where on the cover they talked about uh, science and religion, and inside it mentioned that if you take a electromagnetic transmitter and put it right next to a certain part of the brain to excite a very specific region of the brain, people become very religious. Uh, they think they're in the presence of an omniscient being. They become awestruck uh, by this presence. And uh, this is not a healing thing. This is not going to make you, uh, you know, cure cancer or anything. But there seems to be a part of the brain which responds, uh, a part of the brain which has evolved. And the question is, why would this part of the brain evolve unless there was some, like I said, advantage to feeling that you're in the presence of a deity? Uh, well, it could evolve for any number of, of reasons. Um, uh, if you show people certain visual effects, they see uh, amazing illusions. Uh, why did that evolve? It evolved as a byproduct of a good working visual system. No, no uh, organ system is perfect. There's always the scope in which it works well, and then there are the conditions under which it works pathologically. And uh, if, if those conditions are rare enough, or if the pathology is not too deleterious, then that can be a good bargain. The best, the best of all possible worlds is a, a vision system which almost never gives you hallucinations or illusions, but of course sometimes it does. Why do we see a 
stick in the water is bent. Well, because it's just too expensive to make a vision system that can somehow correct for Snell's law of refraction. However, there are fish and birds that do have vision systems that can correct for for the refraction of water. So it's not impossible. So the the fact that if it is, and I'm I'm not quite so sure that the the transcranial magnetic stimulation works quite as as uh, crisply as you suggest, but let's suppose for the sake of argument that it does. Uh, why should there be uh, a spot which uh, induces uh, uh, some sort of religious conviction to occur? Well, that's a very good question, and it may not be because it's good to have that belief. It may be that it's good to have the beliefs that uh, the system delivers, and this is the system in a pathological state. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. And if you want to know more about exploration and what I do, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. On Facebook, I have 5 million fans on Facebook. I've written five New York Times bestsellers, and the latest one is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. One equation to summarize all the laws of the universe an equation perhaps no more than one inch long that will allow us to, quote, read the mind of God. Find out by getting a copy of my book, The God Equation. Good day.